The Yakar and Coca Report, episode 143. Welcome to the Yakar and Coca Report, the podcast dedicated to making sense of healthcare. From policy to economics, from evidence based medicine to ethics, join us as Drs. Michelle Lacard and Anish Coca diagnose and treat the latest epidemic of healthcare absurdities. Hello, welcome to the Akkad and Coco Report. Today we have the pleasure of having Adam Mortara. Adam Mortara uh, graduated from the University of Chicago in 1996 with a BSc in chemistry. He then went to Magdalene College, Cambridge, uh, where he got a master's degree in astrophysics. Um, he subsequently went to law school at the University of Chicago, graduating there from there in 2001. He's now a partner at the Bartlett Beck, Herman, Polenker, and Scott LLP, and he also lectures uh, at the University of Chicago Law School. Adam, thank you so much for coming on. Well, welcome. Oh, thank you. Great to be here. Adam is here. Um, we, don't, we don't have a lot of lawyers on. We have had some other lawyers. Uh, but but uh, Adam is here to discuss a fairly famous case that he was involved with. Adam was one of the lead trial lawyers in, a, in Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard. Uh, this was a lawsuit filed with the organization called Students for Fair Admissions and other plaintiffs in U.S. Federal District Court in Massachusetts in 2014 against Harvard University, claiming that Harvard discriminates against Asian American applicants in its undergraduate admissions process. Um, Adam was arguing for um, the Students for Fair Admissions. Um, uh, the the case uh, came to an well came to a, at least a temporary end in October first of twenty nineteen uh, when Judge Allison Burroughs rejected um, the claims of Students for Fair Admissions and ruled that Harvard's admissions practices do meet constitutional requirements and do not illicitly discriminate against Asian Americans. Um, We've had, we've had uh, a recent hubbub in the world of cardiology because uh, one of our colleagues, an electrophysiologist at the University of Pittsburgh, Norman Wang, uh, recently wrote um, uh, what he termed a white paper on the history of affirmative action in medicine. Um, uh, you know, a few months after it was published, um, it, it came on um, some radars of some folks that uh, felt that it crossed the line and uh, the paper, within days, uh, dizzying speed, within days, was retracted. And uh, Dr. Wang, uh, who was the fellowship director at the University of Pittsburgh, uh, was quickly removed from that uh, from that position. Um, so, uh, given given all the discussion here, we wanted to bring Adam on to kind of give us uh, a, a state of where we are right now when it comes to the law and and affirmative action. So, Adam, can you? Tell us a little bit about um, how, about the case that that you argued, and uh, you know how how you how you came to it. And uh... sure, sure, uh, I, it might be a little bit helpful to set the stage for what affirmative action in, in yeah. America looks like, uh, pretty much between two thousand three and today. Uh, so, in nineteen seventy eight, the Supreme Court was faced with a challenge to a medical school admissions program uh, on the grounds that uh, the, the admissions admissions officers were using race as as a factor to decide an admissions process. And along the way, the Supreme Court said a number of things uh, in a fractured opinion. It's not really important uh, who said what because we have more controlling law today. But along the way, what the Supreme Court said were a couple of things. One is quotas, racial quotas, in higher ed admissions are illegal. Okay, so you can't have 10 slots for 
Asian Americans, 10 slots for Hispanics, 10 slots for African Americans. We understand that. Then um, along the way, there's this plurality opinion by Justice Powell that ultimately essentially becomes the, the law of the land in 2003 that says, you, you can't have quotas, but what you can do is consider race as one factor among many when deciding whether to admit somebody. And the idea here is that uh, I'm, I turn out to be white, my family's Italian, I also grew up in the suburbs of Milwaukee, my dad is a fellow of the American College of Cardiology, of which I'm extremely proud, which I had to mention on the podcast. Uh, <laughs> you know, he comes from a rural background, but I don't. And you put everything together about me. And one of the thousand things about me is that I'm white. And, and it, in that context, you could consider maybe that I'm white or that or our African American, that I was African American. And it all sounds great in theory. In practice, the way this works, uh, largely because of a, a variety of constraints in the admissions process and demographics, is that race very quickly becomes the predominant factor in college admissions at the elite level. So race is more predictive of admissions at Harvard than basically any other thing you can think of except whether you're a recruited athlete. So if you're African-American and you do even, even moderately poorly on the SATs, you have a fantastic chance of getting into Harvard. If you're, if you're not, if you're an Asian American, you basically have to shoot the lights out and get a perfect score. I'm exaggerating a little bit for a fact, but that's where we end up. Is that under the Supreme Court's rubric of one factor among many holistic analysis, what, what most of the universities and medical schools and law schools and everybody else have done is they've taken what, what the court said is holistic admissions and they've turned that into this game where you can't really figure out how how they're doing what they're doing but when you look at any statistics like the graphs frankly in dr wang's article with the mcat scores arrayed by proportion of admittees at each mcat range they all look the same you could do that same graph for lsat scores with top law schools you could do that same graph with sat scores with top universities so what ends up happening is under the guise of a so-called whole person or holistic uh, analysis of admissions talent all the elite institutions tend to use race as a predominating factor, particularly when it comes to underrepresented minorities. And then, and this is where Harvard comes in, what happens between the 1980s and essentially 2014 when we filed the lawsuit is that suspiciously all the Ivy League institutions are running at about 20% Asian Americans in their admitted classes. It's not just Harvard, it's, it's essentially all of them hovering a couple percentage points changes every single year but you know, 19 to 20 to 21, back down to 20, back down to 19, very, very tight numbers. And it really looks like to a lay observer, to really any person with a modicum of sense, that Harvard has effectively a quota system. They're, they're doing whatever they do in their admissions process. They're putting the meat into the grinder. And what comes out of the grinder is a perfect sausage every single time with the perfect balance of pork and spices and everything else that they want in their admitted class. And as a result of that, uh, just as a narrative matter, this uh, rather uh, well-known guy in certain circles, Ron Unz, I don't know if you've had him on or if you know who he is, uh, he has a website, publishes an article in, I think it's the American Conservative, which is not something that, that, I, that I've read a lot or that even a lot of Americans read a lot. And it, 
essentially says Harvard's discriminating against Asians. He put together a number of statistics. Mr. Unz is a graduate of Harvard College himself, uh, and and tried to demonstrate to the readers that he that Harvard was discriminating against Asians. And nobody really cared about that because he was in the American conservative until George Will picked it up and ran with it in a December uh, edition of the New York Times as one of the most interesting things of the year or something to that effect. What happened then was, and this is what we know today from the lawsuit, a lot of Harvard alumni got really upset at what they were seeing, um, mostly upset at the idea that Harvard wasn't going to adequately defend itself from Unz's charges. Of course, I think there was widespread understanding or at least received wisdom in at least some quarters of the Asian American community that, that Harvard and its peer institutions, of course, discriminated against Asians. But there's a lot of pushback to Harvard saying, what are we going to do about this? What we now know today is that the Dean of Admissions at Harvard in, in confidential internal correspondence commissioned an internal Harvard study from Harvard has a, uh, an office that's dedicated to studying Harvard itself. And that internal Harvard study was a robust statistical analysis of 10 years of Harvard admissions to try to answer the question of whether Harvard was discriminating against Asians. And they answered it. They found in a, in a very robust regression analysis, a statistically significant penalty imposed on Asian Americans that they could, that could not be explained. And they concluded that Harvard's admissions process likely does discriminate against Asian Americans. And of course, uh, I would hope that with any institution that we were all involved in, if, if, if the CEO of the institution received a report that said we have a significant problem with racial discrimination and here's a robust statistical analysis conducted by the guys down in the boiler room uh, whose job it is to have PhDs to figure this out, that the CEO would do something. And at Harvard, that's not what happened. At Harvard, the CEO here, uh, uh, Dean Fitzsimmons, uh, the Dean of Admissions, he took the report and he, he, he quite almost quite literally, you know, metaphorically chucked it in the garbage. He told absolutely nobody about it. He didn't tell his boss. He didn't tell his boss's boss. He didn't tell the dean of students of Harvard or the president of Harvard. He did not tell his, the dean of, uh, uh, he's the dean of admissions and financial aid. There's actually a director of admissions, his number two, had been working with him for 30 years. He didn't tell her. He didn't tell anybody. And he didn't do anything about it. And of course, the normal people with a common sense inference from that, realized that that means it confirmed to him what he basically knew to be true already, which is Asians were being punished in the process. Well, the UNS article had another effect, which is it raised awareness about Harvard and the potential of discrimination against Asian Americans. And that's why Students for Fair Admissions, which was uh, formed by a guy called Edward Bloom, who is my client, a friend of mine, uh, got together, uh, created a giant organization, 22,000 members now, and filed this lawsuit against Harvard, which took a very, very long time to get to trial. And I, I can say, as a matter of historical fact, I had nothing to do with anything that happened here, certainly not with throwing the internal secret report into the garbage and not telling anybody about it because they don't work at Harvard, but also nothing to do with the litigation itself until the spring of 2018, when my very good friend, Will Consovoy, who, who is really the 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 lawyer who, who has led this effort from the beginning called me up and he said that the giant law firm that Harvard was using was, um, was, was, was kind of bearing down on his smaller firm, uh, that they didn't have a ton of trial experience and, and they were pushing for this big trial and he didn't know what he was going to do. And I said, well, here's a list of three people I think might try this case with you and help you uh, get over the line. And he, he calls me back two weeks later and he said, 
you know, I, I've, I looked at all this, I've thought about it. I decided the person should try this case with me is you. And I said, that's very interesting. I don't really, this is not, uh, I said something like, I don't want to go down in history as the guy who took down affirmative action. Uh, and not, not because I'm afraid to, to go down in history as that guy, but because candidly to you and to your listeners, it had never been a big issue for me in terms of where I arrange my priorities in life. Um, I, I clerked at the Supreme Court in the 2002, 2003 term when the Michigan affirmative action cases were decided and made that, that old plurality opinion from the Bakke case into the law of the land. I clerked for Justice Thomas that term. I was intimately familiar with the law, but it wasn't one of my hobby horses. And I didn't know anything about the secret internal Harvard report because all that was protected under seal at the time. And all I knew was that Students for Fair Admissions was alleging discrimination against Asians at Harvard and wanted to take out affirmative action. And Will says to me, and I'll never forget what he said. He said, I can't tell you everything, but say yes to this. And it will be the most important thing you've ever done in your whole life. And I've said this before, and I'll say it to your listeners. Sometimes you have to trust your friends uh, because otherwise, what's the point of having them? So I took the leap of faith. And the very next week, he was in my office in Chicago. We we're going through all these internal documents and memoranda showing that uh, Dean Fitzsimmons and, and a couple others at Harvard knew what was going on, and, and they did nothing about it. They, uh, they didn't care. And I walked out of this conference room and I literally was unable to control my emotions. I walked up to one of my senior partners that we had grappled with whether to do the case. And I, and I said, this is gonna be the most important thing I'm ever gonna do. And it still is, even though my friend, Judge Allison Burroughs, who I've grown to respect greatly, candidly got it completely wrong. And it's just, it's not, I wish, it, I wish I could say it was episode one in the history of discrimination against Asian Americans in the United States, but is in fact episode 238 in a long history, shameful history, frankly, of discrimination against Asian Americans in the United States is the fact that, that we're, according to, you know, a, a judge that I respect a great deal, we're supposed to accept that Harvard has to penalize Asian Americans in its admissions to further its other affirmative action goals. And that's essentially what she said in her ruling. That was a very long answer to a short question. How did you get involved in the Harvard case? <laughs> but but so, it was great. Uh, Adam, just uh, let me ask you to clarify something here. It, it seems from what you, you say, and uh, you know, at least I, I, think, I think about it in this way, it's really the law that is a contradiction in terms. And so, it's sort of, you know, it allows people to, or institutions, to, to act in a way that seems to be in keeping with the law because the law itself is, is I mean, is that, is that fair or? That's absolutely correct. And in, in, in a very early version of my opening, so I opened the case and I, I must have rehearsed the opening 35 times, more than I've ever done for a trial. Uh, and I, in, very early, in a very early version of my opening, I remember setting this out for the, you know, remember the judge is a lawyer too. I remember setting it out for her in exactly this way. The, the Supreme Court, the law on affirmative action, I sometimes tell people is the Supreme Court says quotas are illegal. 
except then it says you can have quotas. Right. Because the net effect of this holistic admissions model that they've created is that universities can have very thinly disguised quotas and racial balancing in their admitted classes. And so you're absolutely correct. I mean, the University of Texas clearly had quotas. The University of Michigan, the law school clearly had quotas. And, you know, if I was going to tell it, 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 somebody who had kind of read Dr. Wang's article, which does an excellent job of summarizing the law, frankly, and in a very, in my view, objective way, it's not really, I, I couldn't, I couldn't tell whether, I honestly couldn't tell whether Dr. Wang was for or against affirmative action. It seemed to me it was exactly what it said, which was a white paper. Uh, it, it sets it out very well. To an advanced student, I would say an interesting read in the annals of affirmative action law would be Justice Ginsburg's dissent in the Gratz University of Michigan case. In that case, the Michigan undergraduate, they're giant, right? So they have so, to have kind of more- Adam, hold learning. on. Hold on one second. Just, just to set up the thing for, for our audience. The, the, the first time this was argued, as you mentioned, uh, was in the, Regency, uh, in the Regents of the University of California versus Bakke, right? And that was right. a case in 1978 that involved a white uh, student who applied to the University of California, uh, De Davis or something like that. Yeah, medical and, school, right? Right, medical school. Yeah, actually the medical school, right, exactly. And and the the uh, at the time, uh, University of California, Davis um, uh, reserved a certain number of spots mm -hmm. for... Uh, underrepresented. Those minorities. are the illegal quotas. Yeah. Right. And at that point, and, and and so here you had, I mean, that's a quota, right? I Correct. Mean, and that's what's illegal. And then Harvard so, actually submits a brief in that so, case saying, we do it this whole other way, which is this holistic admissions way. Right. But explain to me, explain to me, this is what, that's probably what I didn't understand. So, so clearly, so why didn't, why didn't Bake win that case. I mean, I, what, what is this? What is this? Plural, what's the plurality? Uh, what well, is, what ju Justice Powell's. So Justice Powell issued an opinion that said, in his view, a holistic admissions process that treated race as one factor would be legal. So that's okay. that's that is the view that kind of carried the day from 1978 forward and ultimately carried the whole court, Supreme Court in the Grutter against the University of Michigan Law School case. Right. And, so and was, just to be clear. Harvard likes to take, uh, Harvard essentially very much enjoys taking credit for Justice Powell's opinion in the Bagot decision because they submitted a, a filing to the court trying to describe their, their college admissions process along these lines. And, and just to make sure you understand where all this comes from, in, if you go to the 1900, early, early 20th century, very early 20th century, the way university admissions worked in this country is you either showed up and you you, you got in automatically and you either could survive or you failed out or you took an entrance exam. And if you passed the entrance exam, you got in. This was, it was the easiest, most bright line thing in the world and nobody cared whether you played lacrosse or who your mommy was or daddy. Fast forward to the, the, the you know, middle, early middle 20th century. And what happens is that immigrant Jewish Americans begin to dominate these entrance exams and are finding themselves to be, and I, I really hate this word, overrepresented at elite institutions, Columbia, New York, Cornell, others, Harvard, Dartmouth. And Harvard in particular responds by instituting an anti-Jewish quota, like a Jewish quota system. 
President Lowell does that. This is now well documented. And then they respond because nobody wants the nobody wants the overt quotas by instituting holistic admissions. The purpose of which was to conceal weeding out immigrant Jews from the Harvard College campuses because what had happened, I gather, if you read, um, oh, there's a great book about it. His name is escaping me, but the, but if you, if you read the history of this, the uh, the there reached a tipping point at Columbia, where where essentially Gentiles stopped going to Columbia or in as larger numbers because the campus became so dominated by Jews. Lowell at Harvard feared the same thing happening at Harvard. So they adopted this holistic admissions process, which sounds great. It sounds like everybody's being treated like a special snowflake. And really the entire purpose of it is to mass discrimination. Fast forward to later in the 20th century. And there's another group, immigrant group on the scene in America. And what do they do? They shoot the lights out on every objective measure. Uh, and who are they? They are uh, Asian Americans and, and in today predominantly Chinese Americans. And they are just they're they're destroying white students and everybody else on these objective measures. And so what happens? Holistic you know, admissions again used to to suppress the representation of a minority group on campus. So 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 then so so there's so they, they uh, you know so there's this understanding that race can be used as a plus factor. This holistic mm -hmm. stuff that comes in that you nicely just talked about the history in terms of where Harvard came up for him, with it, and that's where the yep. Supreme Court actually gets the idea to do this holistic and the race is a plus, yep. but not race as a as an only factor. But it also clearly says from 1978 on, race cannot be used as a quota. So then, 25 Correct. years later, Supreme Court revisits the, the subject of racial preference in higher ed admissions in 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 in, in a couple of cases. Yeah, University of Michigan Law School. And yep. and Grutter versus Bollinger and and uh, and and Gratz. And, and Gratz, right? So, so what 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 was the? Can you tell me a, a bit? Yeah. Like the so it's it's pretty that? it's pretty easy. It's very interesting. The yeah. law school case, which is the more famous of the two, because it says what's legal. In the law school case, the University of Michigan Law School had a totally uh, you know overt ham-fisted affirmative action program where, and I know you're probably not familiar with the LSAT scale, but on the LSAT, the highest score is 180, it's a perfect score. The median score, I believe, is a 150. Uh, and so, so 150 to 180 is essentially the range. If you were African-American and got a 145, I think, which is below the median, and these numbers are in the opinion, you had a standing chance at getting into the University of Michigan Law School, which is an elite law school, by the way. And if you were white and you got this score, you had zero chance. And the, the, it was extremely stark. You know, totally ham-fisted, as I said, affirmative action program. And it resulted in rough balance. You know, they were essentially, they had a disguised quota system in the way that we've been discussing. Uh, that's the one that gets more attention because that's where the Supreme Court effectively said, you can have this holistic admissions, nod, nod, wink, wink. You can have a quota system as long as it's not exactly 10 spots. It's, oh, it's 10 this year, it's 12 that year, it's nine that year. Um, in the Gratz case, which is the one I was mentioning, very interesting, much bigger, admissions pool, University of Michigan undergraduate, they have to run more of a, a machine shop than, than a, a custom motorcycle uh, outfit. So what do they do? They just say, well, if you're African-American, you get 20 points. If you're Hispanic, you get 10. Why do they set 20 and 10? Because of what gets them the right numbers at the end of the process. Because African-Americans generally uh, are, are doing worse on the uh, objective measures. They're also getting eaten up by more elite institutions because they're in demand. So there's this, there's this ultimate effect of 
high-performing African-Americans just get gobbled up by super elite institutions and that leads fewer down at an institution like Michigan. So they got to they assign the points to get the outcome they want. It's all very mechanized. It's all very transparent. And the Supreme Court says that's illegal. Why is it illegal? It's illegal because I guess it's too mechanized. It's too it's too it's it's too black it's too to pardon the pun black and white in terms of how it uses race and justice ginsburg and at the time when i was there i did not really appreciate how right she was she says we have got this completely backwards we should be saying the transparent use of race is legal because at least then we can figure out what's going on this other stuff is a lot harder to get to the bottom of. And boy, was she right. And, and so it turns out that now everything gets hidden under this detritus of college admissions officers. And who are they? Um, you, you know, I, I, you guys are probably both have kids. But kid applies to Harvard. My gosh, Harvard admissions office looks like this. Half the people there have been working there for or not half, a good chunk of the people working there have been working there for decades. Some of them have PhDs. They are literally some of the most amazing, interesting, well-rounded people you'd ever come across. And they're good and, and, and decent people. Many of them were witnesses in our case. And you would love to have your child's college admissions uh, a folder looked at by one of them. And then there's this giant chunk, frankly, of, of children who have just graduated from college um, many of whom are of sort of questionable literacy even. And it's like this weird hodgepodge of these totally inexperienced kind of rubes, if you will, and these very, very erudite smart people, PhDs. So that they, you get marched into this college admissions office and allegedly you're getting looked at like a special snowflake when in reality, and we know this, you're getting looked at first and foremost by the color of your skin. It's one of the very first things they ask you on the application. Everybody gets asked, and it is the single most important thing, unless you're a recruited athlete. So, so, so that that you know, here they they strike down one, <laughs> they uphold the other, and then oh, can you you mentioned this in in your opening? What is a what's a what is a controlling principle? You mean in terms of. What are, just what, generally, what, what, yeah, what are controlling principles? Is that just some? That's... So, so what happened is Justice Powell's opinion, the reason why that the court revisited affirmative action 25 years right. after 1978 is that it wasn't clear whether Justice Powell's opinion in Bakke was actually a controlling opinion in the sense of, that it was law. And over in, in down in Texas, one of the courts of appeals had said, no, it's not. And in light of a bunch of intervening Supreme Court precedents about the use of race in various areas of the law, that court had held that affirmative action was in fact illegal under the constitution. And so we had affirmative action was declared illegal in Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi by the court of appeals down there. And therefore that's why the University of Texas got rid of affirmative action instituted the so-called top 10% plan, which was a different mechanism to achieve diversity in a, in a different way and then the Supreme Court kind of had to take the issue because we had confusion amongst the lower courts about what the law was. And that confusion was resolved when a majority of the court in Grutter adopted Justice Powell's logic 
from backing, led by Justice O'Connor. What does what does I mean, uh, Dr. Burroughs, uh, right, Dr. Al, uh, oh, Judge she, Burroughs, yeah, Judge Burroughs, sorry, Judge Burroughs. She um, uh, she mentioned some controlling principles from uh, the Fisher judgment. Why? So why is the Fisher judgment? Is the Fisher judgment kind of yeah, yeah I tend to, I tend clarifies Edward Edwards Edward would get upset at me because uh, I tend to and William and Will would too because I tend to overlook Fisher in the scheme of things. I was I was at the court for Grutter and Gratz and and what then happened is Edward uh, Bloom and Will amongst others uh, brought the Fisher cases and the Fisher cases were about whether Texas was complying with Grutter. And a bunch of evidence was brought to the floor that showed that Texas wasn't using race as just a factor of a factor. It was an outsized factor that Texas was doing things that weren't justified by the diversity interests that had been authorized in Grutter, et cetera, et cetera. And in, essentially you can boil down Fisher one and uh, Edward B and William would, would, would probably be upset at me saying this. You boil down those two cases to, yeah, universities can really do whatever they want as long as they don't have a quota. We're not really going to look too deeply into what they're doing. Uh, don't worry about it. Everybody get on with your day. And we're not going to overrule Grutter, keeping in mind that Justice Kennedy, you probably wouldn't know this, but Justice Kennedy had been a consistent opponent of affirmative action from 2003 through the Fisher One decision. Um, then in Fisher Two, you would think he would vote to to overrule Grutter, and he did not. He ended up saving affirmative action, uh, sort of switching his vote, if you will. And now we're in a situation again where it's unclear, based on changing membership of the court, what the court's position is about affirmative action. And so we're going to do it all over again potentially to see again what the Supreme Court says on this subject. Coming back to coming back to Dr. Wang's paper in terms of his summary of mm-hmm. of, of of all of this, but. You know, those are all the major cases that we've that that concern affirmative action, and yep. and Dr. Wang synthesizes it to say that, you know, affirmative action is today is allowed if and he and he mentions four things. It's not a quota. Preference is not is not awarded solely for race or ethnicity. Um, uh, three, race and ethnicity neutral efforts have been insufficient, and four, it does not cause uh undue harm uh to a non-favored racial to, to non-favored racial ethnic groups oh and there's a fifth one that there is a logical end to this yeah three three and three and five three and five are there that that's just um those are just bromides in the sense okay that, that, that they're they they are it is allegedly the law but what fisher tells us is it doesn't really matter harvard has no sunset provision on its affirmative action program nobody cares uh the you know, with this race-neutral alternatives business, you you would think that what that means is if you can get your racial diversity with with without using, if you can get diversity without using race, you should have to do that. And yet, what it really means is if it bothers any university administrator, that's not that's not an actual alternative. It like hurts their feelings or something, because you know, Harvard, if we effectively showed that Harvard could achieve racial diversity on its campus using socioeconomic preferences without compromising the academic integrity of the student body. And Harvard produced in the middle of the litigation, a sort of made for litigation report that said, oh no, that would be terrible. Why we'd have more poor black African, more poor black students. Uh, the, the distribution 
of socioeconomic status amongst underrepresented minorities. It's all categorized in this very anodyne language. But what it really means is we'd have more poor black and Latino students, and we don't want that. Why? Because what Harvard actually wants is rich African-American students who go to Sidwell Friends in Washington, DC. They don't really want the kid who came from my hometown of Chicago here uh, dodging bullets on his way to school with no textbooks, who actually somehow managed to get a decent score on the SAT and get decent grades at a failing school. They don't actually want that kid at Harvard. They don't want more of that kid. They want more of, uh, frankly, the Obama children. Why, why is that? Well, I mean, why, Harvard wouldn't say that. Because they don't actually care. Because, because, so what's Harvard? This is what I learned about what Harvard is. I didn't really know yeah. much about Harvard. I went to the University of Chicago, as you mentioned quite a different institution, life of the mind and all. Harvard is a privilege perpetuation and, 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 and creation factory. It exists. There's basically three groups of people at Harvard and you can divide the Harvard college class into three groups. One is the shoot the lights out geniuses who got 1600 on their SATs and you know, they're national merit scholars and they're concert violinists and they're in every way a better kid student than I was in high school. And they, and they, they, they're there to maintain the reputation of Harvard as a leading academic institution. You have to have them. Then a third of the kids are the children of Harvard's donor class and its own alumni. I hope if either one of you went to Harvard, good luck to your children because <laughs> they have a much better chance of getting in. Uh, the, and those are the people for whom Harvard exists to perpetuate the privilege of the donor class and the children and the Harvard alumni. And then the other third of the class are the people that are there so that everybody in the second group, the people for whom Harvard was made, can say they went to a diverse institution and to make everybody feel good about themselves. And you, you make people feel good about themselves by having what, what Justice Thomas refers to in the Greta opinion is aesthetic diversity, which is a superficial concept. That you look at me and I'm white, you know everything about me. I look at you and I imagine that you're South Asian, Indian American, uh, and I know everything about you. I, I, I just learned everything about you because I saw your face. And uh, it doesn't matter whether you're African American from Sidwell Friends or African American from the South side of Chicago, if that's all you care about. And it, the, the single best piece of evidence that that's all they care about is they literally published a report that said, we're not gonna stop using this evil tool of race in our admissions process because it's going to change the economic distribution of the African-Americans on our campus from relatively rich to relatively poor. Hmm, interesting. So, so, so when, you know, Judge Burroughs, you know, writes in her, uh, in her response uh, um, that, uh, you know, she feels, uh, you know, she, she basically bought Harvard's argument that racial categorizations are necessary to achieve, you know, the goals of mm -hmm. having a diverse body. Um, and 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 Harvard is allowed as a as I guess a private I mean does it matter the private as a private institution to yeah. to have that goal to say hey we're a private institution we want to give our 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 uh, um, uh, folks that are in, at Harvard a very diverse background in order for them to have you know to reach whatever to, for, in order for them to have yeah. virtuous education or what have you yeah to um, to, so to be just to be clear to for your yeah, yeah just to be clear for your listeners the reason that Harvard is so subject to any kind of restrictions about yeah. what they can do in admissions right. is because while the 14th Amendment and the Equal Protection Clause only affect state institutions like the University of Michigan and University okay. of Wisconsin, where I'm from, or University mm. of California, Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 imposes a non-discrimination obligation on any institution that accepts federal money. Harvard takes a lot of federal money. 
And so they are, are bound by federal law not to discriminate in the provision of higher education services, including admissions on the basis of race. What the Supreme Court has done is said, well, even though Title VI says you can't discriminate on the basis of race, you can discriminate on the basis of race if it's affirmative action. And they've said that the law for the constitutional purposes and this Title VI of the Civil Rights Act are the same. So our suit against Harvard is actually only under Title VI of the Civil Rights Act because Harvard's not bound by the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution because it's not a, as you say, it's a private institution. But in, unless they want to stop taking federal money, they're bound by the 64 Civil Rights Act, which is why Yale's in trouble now. Uh, it's been written in the news recently. The Department of Justice yep. just sent Yale a letter saying you are violating Title VI of the, of the Civil Rights Act because you are discriminated against Asians and have a, a affirmative action program that's not in compliance with the law and you better stop or we're going to sue you. Right. The one of the, one of the other requirements is that uh, that this whatever plan that they have to achieve their diversity goal is narrowly tailored. Correct. Mm -hmm. And and so. Um, you know, and this was laid out in Fisher and, 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 and Grutter, you know, the narrowly tailored over and over again. And the, the court, Judge Burroughs, found that Harvard's admissions program bears the hallmarks of a narrowly tailored plan and that race is used in, in a flexible, non-mechanical -me non way. And it's considered as a plus factor. And then it gets into this idea of the personality points. <laughs> yeah, well, personal, uh, I, I, the personal score, as they call it. At, at, right. And rating. so it, it's fascinating that... You know, in her in her in her judgment, she specifically goes into the fact that, as a group, um, you know, it, it, this is I'm quoting. It is possible that the self-selected group of Asian Americans that applied to Harvard during the years, including the data set used in this case, did not possess the personal qualities that Harvard is looking for. Yeah. Um, what? what uh, Does not doesn't that I mean, doesn't that strike strike folks as Racial, I mean, is, I mean, is it as is a racial racist? stereotype? Um, it, so the answer to your question, the legitimate answer is no, it doesn't strike a lot of people as it may strike you that way. And it may strike anybody with, um, I think I have a couple of ways. First of all, I do not, she is wrong. And, okay. uh, because how do you go about proving overt discrimination if you, I mean, I mean, isn't that? If you're going to believe things like this, I, I totally understand what you mean. I, I'm yeah. trying to, I, I choose my words very carefully when I'm talking about this particular aspect of the opinion, which comes up frequently when I talk about it. Mm -hmm. She fell, she fell victim to, uh, to what I think many people, particularly whites, particularly older whites, believe uh, about Asian Americans. Mm -hmm. And she did it in this, you know, she caveated it with the self-selected, frankly, you know, cover story. But the question that Harvard never really was able to answer. So Harvard has this rating system. And basically the, the primary way in which they discriminate Asians is they get lower personal ratings. So it's very interestingly, Harvard said that they didn't use race in the personal ratings. The personal ratings is a measure of how interesting you are and vivacious and wonderful. Um, I would have gotten an amazing personal rating uh, if anybody actually looked at me as a human being as opposed to looked at the paper. Um, Asians get the lowest personal ratings. And it, this is the interesting part. They say race has nothing to do with the personal ratings, yet Asians get way lower than whites. What else is true? Magically, it's just magic. 
African-Americans get gigantically better personal ratings, I guess just because they're amazingly much cooler than everybody else, than Hispanics who get much better personal ratings, because I guess they're much cooler than whites who get much better personal ratings than Asians. And amazingly enough, the array of the personal rating where they say, no, 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 never you race, turns out to be exactly the same as the array of their plus factor for admissions. Blacks get the most, Hispanics get the next most, whites get nothing. If you're looking at it relative to whites, of course, they're the baseline and Asians get completely hosed. So then they never explain, no one has ever explained what it is that's so special about African-American applicants to Harvard that they, are, they, they all have these amazing personalities. So come back now to Asians. I tell this story whenever I talk about this, because to me, it, I should have known uh, in December of 2018 that we were going to lose this case. I'm down in Florida, my wife, other family, uh, after Christmas, before New Year's, I go to the hotel bar to wait for the others, wait for my wife. I end up next to uh, two women who are, uh, one is in their 80s, the other one's in her 50s, 60s. They're very educated. One is a business school professor. And because uh, I'm there alone, I get to chatting. Says, what are you doing? What have you done lately? And of course, all I talk about is the Harvard case. It only closed a month and a half ago. And I explained the whole thing, including the stuff about the personal rating. And I said, so you see, the problem is Harvard is stereotyping Asians as being less interesting, more of an academic grinds, less vivacious, and that's wrong. And the, one, more less, the younger woman looks at me and says, wait a second, that's true. My Johnny was so much more well-rounded and interesting than the Asian kids in his high school. And I should have realized right then and there that there's an entire group of well-educated principally white Americans who believe this crap. And unfortunately the passage that you just cited is, is an example of somebody being willing to entertain that notion. And I'm very, very lucky. I spent a lot of my formative uh, time as a kid, uh, as a high school student uh, and college student in China um, I was in a, a fraternity that was over 50% South Asian uh, at the University of Chicago. My three best friends are Pakistani, Indian American, and Filipino American from college. Um, I didn't, I don't think that. I know what kind of a awful thing it is to say. It's kind of up there with overrepresented, whatever that means. And I know that. I know that Judge Burroughs, who is a great and decent and wonderful judge, will regret having said that. Are we, is it, is it, does she have a point in that if it's, if Asian Americans as a group are academically stronger, that another group could have personality wise be stronger? Is that a I mean, I mean, it's it's so hard to say. Literally, this entire thing was invented to discriminate against Jews who, had, who allegedly had bad personalities back in the middle of the 20th century. I mean, it, it, you cannot say it with a straight face. You can say with a straight face, hey, I see these kids have better SAT scores and they got more extracurricular curricular activities and et cetera, et cetera. You cannot say with a straight face, oh, you know, on paper. I mean, keep in mind, these people... When they're interviewed by the alumni, many of them are, most of them are interviewed by alumni. They don't get different personal ratings. It's right. basically all the same. 
on paper, Harvard decides, oh, you're boring. Why? Because you're Chinese. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, your, your listeners will appreciate the following. And we've made a little bit of this in the trial, but not a lot because it's, it's, it's frankly, you have to have, I think, some science background to kind of understand this a little bit. When you look at the numbers, um, the number of, and I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but the, the, the number of Asian American applicants to Harvard who have 4.0 high school GPA, GPAs or equivalent and 1,600 on their SATs is gigantic. I mean, it's big. It's hundreds of people every year. The number of African Americans who are in the, kind of the same top academic decile is tiny. It's if the number of Asians is in the hundreds, the number of African Americans in that group could be in the tens, could be in the in the in low double digits. And so, when you are schooled into looking at an applicant first and foremost by their racial identity. A Chinese American applicant with perfect SAT scores looks like what? A dime a dozen because there's so many of them. And if the first thing you're thinking about them is not, who is this kid? Are they from Dallas? Are they a champion debater? Did they come from hardship? You're actually just thinking, well, it's Chinese. Her name is, you know, uh, uh, Wang or Kwong. And they look like a dime a dozen. And what does the African American look like? You don't think about them first as an African American candidate. And then they look like what? Not a dime a dozen, a diamond in the rough, because there are so few of them. And it's called the scarcity heuristic. As human beings, one of the one of our economic, one of our behavioral economic biases is if I tell you that something is the rarest thing on earth, you immediately assume it's valuable. And if I tell you something is common, you immediately assume it is not valuable. Because supply and demand is sort of hard-coded into us in that way. And that is what happens at Harvard. When you look at somebody first and foremost on the basis of race, there are a lot of Chinese American high academic performers. They look common. They look like a dime, a dime a dozen. There are very few, comparatively few in an absolute number sense, African American stars. They look like diamonds in the rough. So now when I say dime a dozen versus diamonds in the rough, who gets the better personal rating? It's that's why it happens. The, um, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced of that, by the way. I, I, I mean, and I spent years of my life looking at this at this point. The um, it, it's it, it's interesting how, you know, how how how, how the uh, judgment is written, you know, the, in the conclusions, they make sure to say that. So after I just quoted you what Dr. Burroughs, Judge Burroughs said, I keep saying doctor, <laughs> Judge Burroughs said, she also says, the court firmly believes that Asian Americans are not inherently less personal than any other demographic group, uh, just as it believes Asian Americans are not more intelligent or more gifted in extracurricular pursuits than any, than any other group. Um, yeah, then, yeah, that, you know, that, it's, it, that was really, that's really funny, right? I mean, <laughs> I, I, like, you, don't know, you almost don't know what to make of that other than it's, like, it's an apologia, and that's why she has a self-selected thing in the footnote. Um, yeah, I, be I believe the yeah. first thing, too, for sure, uh, because it's based on my life experience and I think common sense. Um, as to the second thing, I, I really have no idea. Um, I assume you know, Dr. Murray might have something to say about that. And I think he wrote a book about it. It's very controversial. It's got some information along those lines. Um, one interesting point to make is that you know, the Department of Education Office of Civil Rights investigated Harvard in the late 1980s for anti-Asian discrimination. And they had kind of a of what it would is today a sort of simplistic statistical analysis. But if you looked at the numbers, what they found is that 
Asian Americans were doing better than white students on SAT math, but not verbal and not extracurriculars, extracurriculars. Um, fast forward to our case and Asian Americans destroy white applicants on both, prong, both versions of the SAT math, SAT verbal and extracurriculars, everything objective. It's, yeah. it's not even close. So let's get to some of these. And, you know, I hope the listeners have a, have a really good sense of what the law says and what some of the back and forth were, was on, you know, in, in, in your case that you, that you argued. Um, and, you know, what some of Dr. Wang's concerns are that there's a de facto racial quota that, that uh, the American College of Cardiology, uh, other organizations in medicine are attempting to um, get proportional representation of the medical student body, the, you know, the, the faculty that ultimately uh, graduates. And, you know, he has one passage here where he talks about, um, uh, you know, that this having specific targets in terms of numbers, you know, he actually lists somebody in their presentations that talked about, you know, you know, there's a 12 percent, uh, you know, uh, that's our goal. Uh, when you when you say that, um, when people talk in that fashion, is that illegal? Are we skirting the bounds of illegality? Like, what does what does the? Yeah. So what Harvard does, just to give an example, is they they admitted in open court that as their classes forming together, they compare this year's numbers to the last year's numbers to see if any group is behind, and if a group is, they do stuff to fix it. And that, I mean, that is an admission that they have a, a rough quota system. Yet, Judge Burroughs found that that's completely legal. And so a target of 12%, I mean, look, I hate to put it in these terms. If I, if I took that to a judge and the judge were inclined to actually follow the law and not give all universities a pass all the time, that is illegal. Even going back to Baki. However, I'm morally certain that somebody would come in and say, oh, they didn't really mean a target of 12%. It was, it, was a, it was a rough estimate of what a critical mass looks like, and there's no hard and fast number, and don't worry about it. And look, it's not actually always 20, 12%. Sometimes it's 11 and a half, and sometimes it's 12.6. So, you know, they'd get away with it. That's what I'm trying to say. The ACGME, right, which which uh, is the body that kind of controls uh, uh, residents uh, training, mm -hmm. um, that, that does the matching thing. Right, right, yeah. In addition to that, they, they, yeah, they, they, I think they manage that. They also, uh, you know, they're they're the body that kind of takes care of and sets the rules for residency programs, right? Mm -hmm. Work hour limits come from them. Now, they, as you as you read in Dr. Wang's paper, have kind of gone from uh, suggested distributions to you need you need you need to get here right this is what you need to do any any describe yeah i think? saw that i saw that in the paper that they've kind of started to mandate diversity targets which is of course a recipe for disaster right right yeah right exactly right so is that how, how does again is that type of language also uh, you know is that is that something almost that's concerning? almost assuredly illegal i mean but but the, here here's the problem who is going to say something about that you know God bless Edward Bloom and Will Consovoy for devoting substantial portions of their lives to finding people willing to stand up to this and go through all the things that 
Barbara Grutter went through, uh, that Fisher went through, that our members and Students for Fair Admissions have gone through to, to actually challenge these things. But it is hard to find people to do that. I mean, who's, for instance, when you talk about residency, who's gonna challenge this? You know, generally the way the match works is most people get matched. So you, you have somebody who didn't get matched and then are they really gonna say that they didn't get matched solely because of their race? And, and are they gonna be able to prove it? And are they, are they gonna wanna take their career on a complete detour to be a plaintiff in a lawsuit? No. So most of these defendants, most of these uh, administrators, higher ed administrators, they've learned from Fisher One and Fisher Two and Grutter that pretty much anything goes and, and no one's really going to question them. And if, you know, with the ACME, with the match, the, the data is um, simultaneously so shallow and that the numbers are pretty small, relatively speaking, you know, and, 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 and then so deep in that so many things go into it that disaggregating that race, when you talk about programs, you know, some of these programs are quite small, I think, you know, handfuls of residents. How could you ever disaggregate that race was the sole or deciding factor in somebody not getting an offer I think it's virtually impossible. So they know they can get away with it. So yes, it's illegal. I think uh, suggesting, I think even like sort of mandating proportions has got to be illegal. Does anybody care? Uh, we're going to find out. What 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 is going to happen next? What what's the next thing? Are you are you still involved in the? Oh yeah. So 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 actually, we have our our uh, we're going to the one of the regional circuit court of appeals, the first circuit court of appeals, which covers Massachusetts. Uh, it's actually also located in Boston. Uh, that argument is next month. Uh, my my friend Will Consovoy will be handling that, and then we'll see what they say. And and then uh, either party, I mean, presumably either party will head off to the Supreme Court. And we'll see if they're interested in, in doing this. At the same time, Students for Fair Admissions has another lawsuit against the University of North Carolina, uh, which is supposed to go to trial in November. Uh, that lawsuit is not as much focused on Asian American discrimination, but it's not. Uh, the, the main allegation there is that the University of North Carolina maintains effectively a disguised version of the Gratz University of Michigan undergraduate system, where like it's a holistic admissions process that magically can be reduced to a formula. You can back out what the formula is. Is the you know much has been made about uh, Mr. Bloom um, as kind of using Asians uh, to <laughs> to kind of rip down affirmative action, and that you know there's certainly some implicit, a lot of explicit stuff said about the fact that look, this is all to attack. Um, you know, black and under uh, black and Hispanic uh, folks uh, in in higher education, and you know, this is just another way of kind of reasserting white supremacy. And we're using, you know, this Asian Americans and you know this model minority myth that exists. Like we are, as Asians are being used as a as as a wedge. Um, what do you what do you what do you say to that? So um, I had, I think, met Edward once before I did this case, and I've gotten to know him fairly well uh, through this process. And uh, I've been asked this question a couple of times. And so sometimes what I say, so the first part about using Asian Americans, uh, and it's no secret that Edward opposes the use of race in higher ed admissions. It's on the Students for Fair Admissions website. That's the position of the organization. But as to the allegation that, that he's using Asian Americans to sort of achieve this end, I can say only the following. I've spent a lot of my 
I've spent a significant amount of my young life in China. I learned Chinese and spent a lot of time over there. And I've met a lot of Chinese mothers, uh, in both Chinese American mothers and Chinese mothers. And I can guarantee you that Edward Bloom has been hugged by a thousand times the number of Chinese mothers than I have been hugged by. And I've been hugged by a lot of Chinese mothers and I've seen it with my own eyes. And the idea, it's, it is absolutely the most laughably stupid thing in the world to suggest that Edward doesn't hold in his heart a deep sense of injustice for the Asian American kids that were denied admission to Harvard and, and other places as well and, and, and hard done by here. And it doesn't mean he can't simultaneously believe race shouldn't be used in college admissions. I don't, it, this, this always gets presented to me as kind of a binary proposition that, that somehow if he's for the Asian American kids, he, he can't really be against affirmative action. He's against affirmative action, can't really be for the Asian American kids. I know Edward and I, 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 I cannot possibly believe he does not seem absolutely sincere in his, in his support for these kids. And I mean, I've got, I'm looking over at my, at the, the framed photos and, and coffee mugs that I've gotten from Asian American groups all over the country thanking me for what I did. And, and I could tell you why I was there. I was there for these kids. And as, as to the second point, that somehow Edward has something uh, potentially uh, uh, animus towards underrepresented minorities, nothing could be further from the truth. Um, I told the judge this, and I'll tell you this, I would not have done this case if I thought it was actually going to reduce the number of African-Americans or Hispanics on Harvard's campus. It is very clear to me what's, what's at issue here. Varsity Blues, the Varsity Blues scandal, tells you everything you need to know about what's going on in, in higher ed in America. Higher ed is for the rich and the privileged and the connected. How do we know this? Harvard gives giant preferences for legacy kids and donor kids, recruited athletes where you bribe the coach to get into school or whatever. And if they got rid of those preferences and boosted socioeconomic preferences, they wouldn't need affirmative action. So what's going to happen if somebody someday tells Harvard they can't use race in admissions? They will dump their rich people preferences because they won't be able to look at themselves in the mirror if there are dramatically fewer African-Americans and Hispanics on Harvard's campus. Forced to choose between rich people preferences and at least aesthetic diversity on campus, they'll choose aesthetic diversity. Coming from the other end, if we were to get it together as a polity, as you know, if we could actually agree on anything ever, you know, Ron Wyden has introduced legislation, federal legislation to ban the consideration of family status and, and, and donor status in college admissions. If that happened, and Harvard couldn't do it, couldn't do its privilege machine anymore, they would stop using race in college admissions because they wouldn't need to. Right. They basically set aside a third of their class every year for whites. Legacies, athletes even at Harvard, legacies, athletes, and rich people, guess what they are? They're dominated by whites. They're over 80% white. So when you set aside a, like about a third of your class for rich people, you're setting aside a giant chunk of your class for white faces from the word go. That's what creates the diversity problem that then you have to fix by letting in a bunch of, of African-American Hispanic kids with lower credentials. And that's, that explains everything about it. If they didn't set aside a quarter of the class, third of the class for whites, they wouldn't be in this mess. If they didn't love rich people so much, they wouldn't be in this mess. I don't know why anyone is defending them. Adam, um, 
just for you know, you've been very generous with your time. Just for for sure. a few more minutes here, I, I'm I'm really quite conflicted uh, uh, about this. I mean, it, it's hard to know what to think, but. The uh, you know to go back to my point about the law being essentially a contradiction in terms. So mm -hmm. if you win your case, or if a case like yours gets won, at the end of the day, what that will do, it will at least attempt to force higher ed institutions like Harvard and whatnot to do something that they really don't want to do, because they want to discriminate for, and 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 not only that, they want to discriminate in a way that. A substantial norm, uh, portion of the population agrees with them, right? Including many people in the government. They say it is okay to discriminate in such and such a way because, you know, we all know that, that uh, you know, I mean, the, the way Dr. Wang's paper was treated reflects the fact that a lot of people think that this behavior is okay. And, and, and it's a human, uh, I mean, it's a natural human tendency to discriminate. Not all discrimination is bad. People discriminate all the time on a variety of mm -hmm. things. Right. So, I mean, I mean, isn't Title VI actually really uh, the problem at the end of the day? I mean, isn't it that what it's? And shouldn't we let Harvard make its own mistakes? I mean, if we think that Harvard is making mistakes, at the end of the day, I mean, it should pay for those mistakes. And why should we yeah. try to to be a better, you know, to Harvard be a better Harvard than it than it really is? Yeah. So there's a there's a there's several different there's several layers and answers to that question. Um, first and foremost, uh, uh, I so I, I don't I don't call myself a libertarian by any stretch of the uh, imagination, and I'm not, as you can tell, I'm sort of an enthusiastic proponent of of, of Ron Wyden's proposed additional federal legislation clamping down on admissions uh, on the basis of of wealth and family status. Mm -hmm. I that's by the way not a position of students for fair admissions. It's my own personal view. I. I I think when an institution has such an outsized role in the creation of the next generation of leaders that Harvard has, um, we either need to destroy the institution um, because it's because it's it's a private institution with too much power, like a like a monopolist almost, or we need to put significant constraints on the institution so that it does not mint leaders in in a way that that is frankly grossly offensive to American ideals like non discrimination. Therefore, I think you're you're absolutely. It's, it it. I, I like the vision of the world that you have. That Harvard's just a bad actor and they're just making mistakes, and so they should be allowed to make their mistakes because they're a private institution. Except for how bloody important Harvard is, and I don't really think that. I think that Harvard almost effectively functions in a quasi-public capacity because it's so important to go to Harvard for for your future career prospects. The second point you made. Which, which I, 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 which is what we actually made chronologically first. Which I, which I, I take to mean, you know, you, you said something like, "Well, I think I thought you were leading up to say we win this case and Harvard has to quote get out of the race business. Aren't they just going to do it anyway?" In sort right. of secret. I mean, that, that's 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 part and of it. And the answer is, yeah, of course, right. of course, there'll be. No, no enforcement mechanism. Prop 209 probably didn't get rid of all use of race in California admissions uh, entirely. It will still be better than what we've got. I mean, you ought to be able to tell a kid's Chinese, if you know anything about Chinese, uh, you know, romanization of Chinese by names many times. But I know a Chinese-American kid whose last name is Hutchinson, so he's not going to get in trouble 
if if he applies to Harvard because nobody's going to know he's Chinese if we get rid of race. Um, so yeah, I, right. I, it'll be a giant step in the right direction. Michelle, it requires you know that kind of thing. It requires uh, the world to be different than what it is, unfortunately, because the unfortunate part is is that the the folks that are making these massive decisions. That, that really affect everything. And look, we would all love to wake up tomorrow in a world that it didn't really matter who was president, whether it was Trump or Biden, or it didn't, it didn't really matter that much what the Supreme Court decides, uh, right? Because, because government is, it has such a small role to play in, in, in our overall life. But, but the real problem here is that, you know, uh, how, can, can, you, can you become a Supreme Court justice if you go to state law school? Oh, yeah. you know... Um at least right now no so yeah but, but um, I, I so, disagree. you know you're I, I, so so i'm all for making harvard irrelevant for because of what what they're doing but but you know we we live in this world where where the rulers uh you know come from these elite institutions and i would argue that part of the reason why we've we've gone into such a tailspin in the last whatever decades in terms of you know, I mean, look, Dr. Wang's paper, Dr. Wang, you know, uh, a much loved electrophysiologist, head of the fellowship program at 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 a, uh, at, a at a pretty well respected institution. I still haven't heard what's wrong with the paper. Right. Right. So white, I, writes I, I a white paper, paper before I came, I've read a paper before right. I came on and I right. didn't read the retraction notice. And I right. I, I, I didn't read it. I read it yeah. fairly closely. I what's wrong with it? Yeah, but yeah. but the good yeah. thing. So the, the good thing. Well, let's answer Adam. Right. They were trying. The the you know they said that he misquoted. He misquoted. Uh, you know there were misquotes and there were falsifications. Now again, your these are these are cardiologists who are saying this thing. You're 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 the lead trial lawyer and and and. got the law biggest... fairly correct. I mean, like I didn't think it was wrong with the law. Right. So I thought he maybe... was, I thought he was probably in trouble for telling the truth. Right. Right. So maybe the editor of of the Journal of the American Heart Association should perhaps consult with you before retracting. <laughs> uh, you know the white paper. This white paper. Uh, rather than you know coming up with whatever they think is, is, I, I, is when the right. New England Journal of Medicine is telling me that that you know me exercising my Second Amendment rights or somebody else doing it is a public health crisis, I, I don't really fault Dr. Wang for for take for having a tour on on what affirmative action looks like since it's obviously very important to medicine. I mean, I, I, I yeah, I, I, right. I didn't so I didn't read so, it closely to see if there were misquotes, particularly of the right. medical stuff that was cited, but it didn't seem problematic to me. Can I ask you, Adam, and then we'll get to Michelle. Sorry, I cut you off, Michelle. Um, the fact that Dr. Wang did, uh, you know, face some, um, you know, he was removed as a fellowship director, um, and, you know, ostensibly for this alone, uh, for publishing a, a paper in peer review. Um, you know, it, it's 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 rumored that he, uh, you know, is not allowed contact uh, with trainees um, uh, because he, he's created now an unsafe environment. Um, does that, does that, I don't know, is that, is that, how, is that okay? If, because, well, it's obviously keep... whether, whether it's, whether it's legal or not is a different question. It's based of course, entirely on the relevant law where he is and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, whether it's right is, should be self-evident. I mean, we, we've really entered this, this, this insane world where, you know, I've got on my, uh, shelf here, a book called five ideas to fight for by, Anthony Lester, who's a who, uh, has been a member of the House of Lords, distinguished human rights barrister, um, before he retired from the House of Lords recently, and and one of the things he points out is he came to America when he was a younger man or young lawyer. He points out how wildly different America is from every other country on earth when it comes to free speech, and how we value free speech a lot more than everybody else, 
there's essentially speech regulation of a type that would be considered per se illegal everywhere else on earth. And yet what we are seeing in this generation is just a total erosion of that idea. I, I mean, making people feel unsafe by saying something that's not, you know, I'm going to hurt you, which, you know, literal threats by, by writing a peer reviewed article about affirmative action, even if it's got misquotes, even if it's wrong, it's, it's, it's really unbelievable. And you have to, you have to wonder how many people choose to say nothing because of the consequences of saying anything. I mean, the two of you are doing this podcast and bringing on important guests like Amy Wax and others who have been punished for what they've said. You know, it's right to take criticism for things people say. I, you know, I've, I'm, I'm, I've been, I've been uh, lucky or unlucky enough to be called a racist at a number of forums, including at Harvard when I spoke there about this case. Uh, the criticism is that Dr. Wang would, would not, as fellowship director, who's going, you know, who's who's interviewing applicants that are coming in, because of what he said, because of you know some of the comments made. Uh, I, I mean, again, in a in a factual way about the academic credentials of under underrepresented minorities, uh, the criticism is that he you would be unable to appropriately, uh, uh, um, you know, interview these folks and select select folks in a, in, a, in an objective in an objective manner. Mm, I mean, uh, I mean, I. I guess if, if there were any evidence to that, it's sure, but it just seems to me, I mean, those, you look at the only, the only thing that jumped off the page at me was how you look at that sort of, there's table three or something like the MCAT distribution thing, which is sort of tells the whole story, right? I mean, not that I think the MCAT is the end all be all of medical school admissions, but it's, it's an objective measure. Um, it kind of tells you everything you need to know. And so what he told the truth about something that presumably everybody knows i, I got to believe if this is not a mystery to people involved in medicine that the mcat distribution on the basis of race looks like that but he had the temerity to actually voice it and now because he said something his entire worldview is suspect as it pertains to making individual decisions about individuals which we all know from the ecological fallacy it is completely inappropriate to make any decision about an individual based on an aggregate statistic or to assume a medium from a mean or vice versa. We all unless know you, that. That's basic unless, statistics. Uh, yeah. Well, unless you're on the side of assuming that certain groups have much bigger personalities than other groups. Then it's, <laughs> that's okay. that's fine. Yes, so. the ecological fallacy is alive well at Harvard College admissions. That is for sure. <laughs> and in, and in, sadly, in, in Judge Burroughs' uh, opinion. And I, again, I can never bring her up without saying how much respect and this is this is this is from the heart she treated us with absolute respect she's one of the best judges i've ever been in front of she got it horrifically wrong she she will respect me for disagreeing with her but she will also i think respect the fact that i always do so respectfully she's uh if all the judges in america were like her we would have a body of better judges michelle anything else no, I mean, I, I if I I don't know I don't know how I can come back because I think your 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 objection is is correct that uh, that in the short term, it seems to be the right thing to do. I mean, it certainly is the right thing to do for, you know, those those students who want who want to get in who are discriminated against. But but discrimination is the aim, is, is is the name of the game and everybody's playing it and and we should you know we we can't we can't keep. We can't keep saying that. Well, you know, it's you know, it's 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 too long of a view that you know the 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 fact is you know Harvard and these institutions are very powerful, and at the same time keep keep you know 
keep it's them so f- as powerful as they are yeah. because you know we keep so uh, I so, don't know. I mean, so i think yeah. so, so let me i'll tell i'll tell us i'll tell two stories that i think kind of answer why this is important in a way to me that that's meaningful one is that i was doing uh i was doing some press with a national media group and i was getting peppered with questions about the case very difficult questions and then there is everybody's got to go take a restroom break so walk into the restroom and the editor asian american says to me i'm i'm sorry we're giving you such a hard time and they're asking you such tough questions and i said no look it's my job to answer difficult questions i don't mind it's great he says i just wanted to be sure that the case that you're making is real because all my life i've been told i had to work harder to get anywhere this gentleman was korean american and that and that that was just the way it was and i looked to him and i did not use the um the joe biden crutch of saying come on man but i'm but i i guess i could have if i was biden i said come on man in order to formulate my thoughts so i could say something uh i said that's exactly the racism that we're talking about is the idea that you deserve it and the second thing i'd point out to you michelle is is what do you say to chinese American immigrants, one of the largest, fastest growing immigrant populations, Asian, but many of them are Chinese American. What do you say to somebody who comes over here, kind of believes the hype that this is the land of the free where you can say whatever you want, I guess relative to China you can, but where you're going to be judged on your, on, on your merits every step of the way. And then if you're here for longer than 20 minutes, you're going to be in a WeChat or, or with somebody that says, oh, uh, uh, guess what? That's true for everybody except you. Because for whatever reason, because because we are we're because we're working harder or because we're doing better because we're because we're because so many of us are kicking so much butt, you're not going to be treated the same way on the merits. I, I mean, forget about everything Justice Thomas says and everything he says is valid. I think and, and from the heart about the effective affirmative action on African Americans and underrepresented minorities. Yeah, but, but, what is it doing to the Asian American population, the immigrant Asian American population, when they are constantly told from the day one that they get here that they have to outperform everybody in order to get the same things? I mean, it, it, it's, you know, it is at the literally end of the day, I'm a not pressure. Sure. I'm not sure at the end of the day, uh, right? I mean, what's, you know, it's kind of a meaning of life question, right? I mean, what, what's... If, if they're well, they do well, they can't get into Harvard, they can't, you know, they get discriminated against, you know, they, they'll and find then they, And then they end up, they end up going to Duke. And so, right. you know, what's the funny thing about, the funny thing about that yeah. is, you know, there was, Dr. Wang cited a, a mismatch study from Duke in the paper. And that mismatch study was written by our expert, Peter Arsidiakono mm-hmm. of Duke University, an, econo- an, an economist. And uh, he testified for us as students for fair admissions. There's a different kind of mismatch theory that doesn't get discussed very much which is when a kid, a uh, young Asian American kid gets perfect SATs, perfect GPA, does everything right, you know, ticks all the boxes, goes and even sees the college counselor and does everything. And then they get, and they're, you know, live, live wire champion, debater, president of student body, whatever. And they get rejected from all the Ivy League institutions and they end up at Duke. A phenomenon that I have observed, and I'm not saying I've done a study, I'm saying I've observed this anecdotally. So this is a case report for the parlance of, medicine is they actually never take to the institution they get into because they're always walking around with the knowledge 
that they were discriminated against and denied access to these elite tier institutions. And this happens all the time. You know, perfect academic superstars, uh, uh, you know, zeroed out at the Ivy League. And they always carry around a little bit of resentment about it. And it actually prevents them from attaching to the university that they do get to. And I've seen this. And they hold no love for the university they end up at. It's a different kind of mismatch. Right. right. It's like a mismatch of the heart, if you will. And and look, people's attachment to their alma maters is very important. I'm extremely attached to the University of Chicago. I think I, I think uh, the lucky stars every day that I got to go there twice. Um, and look, that's that's a problem too. When people are hold in their minds the idea that they did everything right and deserve something, and they didn't get it. Uh, it, it can it creates a lasting effect. Uh, and I, I think it's, yeah, it's important. Yeah, but, but I'm not sure that number one that they would be justified because it seems to me that uh, sort of uh, it's a um, it's a disproportionate uh, we 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 hold in esteem disproportionately these institutions, right? And at the end of the day, they they should do well, you know, regardless of. I mean, you know, I mean, they're human beings. They're yeah. going to do well. Yeah, they're going to the, be. The, they're going to contribute. They're going to part of the. And, I think and part so, of the problem. Yeah. No, Part I mean, of the problem is that the there rules... should be other institutions. I mean, hopefully, yeah. and 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 yeah, I hold I mean, actually in, in such low esteem, is... academia, okay. and and now I mean the 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 silver lining is that with all this, I think academia is getting discredited big time, <laughs> and I'm and I and I think it's it's not soon enough, right? The sooner they get, you know, they get seen for yeah. who they really are, the better except, off they're. They, except they for the be. University of Chicago, you know, we will be. Except, except for right. the university, <laughs> except for the University of Chicago, which is still, you know, my my. My employer in the sense that I teach there and don't get paid. Um, uh, I, I, I think you're right. Uh, I think I, I, I sort of want, I wonder what we could do. I, I guess what you're saying is they're sort of destroying their own credibility. And eventually the whole, the, 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 the cachet, the, the, the value of a Harvard or a Yale degree or whatever will be diminished because of what they've done to themselves. Um, I hope that, you know, so, in some sense, this quarantine COVID thing may may demystify mm -hmm. higher ed mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, right? right. It, just like I think it's gonna demystify, frankly, education in general, education, right. education in general because mm -hmm. we're gonna find out that some kids do just fine when they're homeschooled. Uh, and and you know, as long as other aspects of their lives are taken care of. Um, I hope you're right. I, I, you know, Harvard is an institution that's done a lot of bad things over time, you know, including the discrimination against Jewish applicants for which they have only recently actually acknowledged and apologized for. Uh, I, perhaps it's just the, the pugilist in me, but I, I, we need to, we need to, we need to take them out. But, but it's interesting that it's a, it's a, it's a, I mean, that history is fascinating, but it's a completely different kind of discrimination. The one against the Jews, which was, I mean, in a sense, you could say that it was, Really, they were attacking the Jews themselves and, and wanted to get rid of them. Whereas now, I don't think they would view themselves, and I think that's probably correct, that they're not really anti-Asian per se, that they just oh, want to have... I mean, it, I, I may be wrong. It's, I mean, it's I know very, you, you mentioned it's that. Very you mentioned it's that, very interesting it's, that you raise that because it's actually the parallels are stunning. Okay, so tell, you go tell back me. To, you go back right. to the, the 20th century. To, to the you, know, you go back to the 20th century, mm -hmm. and there were Jews at Harvard. There had always been Jews at Harvard. And what happens is they decide the Jewish, the rich Jews and the Jewish children of their Jewish alumni are fine. Right. The immigrant Jews mm -hmm. 
are the ones that they do not want. And what do they do? They go and enlist the support of their own Jewish alumni in creating the Jewish quotas that kept out the immigrant Jews. So now what's, what's the parallel here? Um, I'll, I'll be very candid. Parallel here is the, 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 there are Asian alumni of Harvard and their children are not discriminated against. Right. And there's always going to be some Asians at Harvard. They're just going to be the preferred Asians. And who are the Asians that are going to be harmed by this? They're the immigrant Asian American community. And lo and behold, Harvard's lead trial lawyer in Students for Fair Admissions Against Harvard, William Lee of the Wilmer Law Firm. And who is he? He is a Chinese American right. graduate of Harvard. Fair enough. Fair enough. I think I think that's a very good point that you make. That that it, it there is a parallel. But nevertheless, I mean, I think again, these institutions will discriminate on whatever basis they choose, and it will change from decade. And it may not be race. I mean, race is now. I mean, who knows what it will be? Well, you'll uh, at least agree, Michelle, that they can yeah. then they can do without federal funding. How's that? Ah, yeah, yeah. that would be yeah. sweet. <laughs> that would be sweet. Well, Let that's them what, do what that's they what, want to do. That's what the DOJ is threatening Yale with, yeah. right? I mean, the ultimate yeah. remedy for what the DOJ is suing Yale for is the, 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 the deprivation of federal funds. I, I, I think, um, I, I, you know, Michelle, when you were talking about Title VI, I, I, one of the things, I, one of the directions I thought you were going to go on, which, which I, I think is, is worth mentioning, is Title VI is something we can change. You know, we as an American people decide that that uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez and Ilhan Omar actually represent the mainstream of American politics, and, and we're going to remake the world the way they want it. We can write expressly that affirmative action is totally fine, or even a quota system is totally right. fine, into, into our law. Uh-huh. Um, we can't change the Constitution. And so in that sense, when the court makes a pronouncement about what the Constitution prohibits, states and state institutions can't do it but so one possibility here is that uh the we decide that we're going to authorize this through the elected you know the elected branches of government because we have a debate about it the problem is until this year when presumably prop 209 is going to be repealed in california by a referendum that's upcoming every time affirmative action has been on the ballot Anywhere in America, it's lost. And, right. and it is it, in at least until the recent um, episodes associated with the death of Mr. Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement. Prior to that, all the polling had showed that by massive numbers, Americans do not support the use of race in higher ed admissions. I don't know what those polls will show today, but I, I can't imagine they've changed all that much. And so we as a people pretty much agree that this shouldn't be going on. It's our lords and masters at the universities who are insisting on doing it. And nothing is going to make them stop until someone makes them stop. Um, Students for Fair has, as of yet, not made them stop. But I have faith that at least Edward and William will do everything they possibly can. And I will be standing right there along with them to get these people to stop. Um, I think, you know, for your listeners... I made this point before we went on the air, and I, I would make it again. The, the one thing about medicine that I thought was interesting about Dr. Waring's paper is he goes through, he mentions a non-peer-reviewed paper talking about same-race doctor-patient relationships and, and its relation to patient outcomes. And your profession, I at least would, I, there's a, as, as we talk about, you know, uh, in epidemiology, sometimes we talk about a, a plausible biological mechanism or hypothesis. It's at least plausible 
that patient outcomes are correlated with patient feelings or emotional state, which are correlated potentially with their, their level of comfort with their physicians, which are correlated potentially with race. And so is it least possible and, and, and that, that the physician-patient race interaction could be important to patient outcomes, is at least possible? Mm-hmm. That, I think, puts medicine in an interesting position. Um, because unlike, say, other professions where you, you wouldn't be able to ever even plausibly allege that race has anything to do with outcomes, at least here, because we're also steeped in race from the word go here in America, you can't graduate kindergarten without knowing what race is, uh, that that actually may be a factor if it is then I think that the question of affirmative action medicine is, 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 is very interesting because you could be thinking about patient outcomes uh, in a way that butts up against a legal and moral principle we have about non-discrimination. And yeah, I, but, I'm, I'm, right, right. Go ahead. I mean, it's possible, but again, I mean, I think we, we, uh, I made that point to, to Amy Wax on the previous episode, is that one way you could say, well, that may be reason enough to have similar, you know, proportional representation, if you will, of other minorities in medical schools. But I, I think it's, it's the case for deregulating medical education completely and licensing and allowing black medical colleges to to spring up the way they did before. We had, mm-hmm. uh, you know, licensing laws and you had a lot of black medical colleges and you had a lot more black physicians serving black communities back then than uh, than ever since. And so I, I, I think, you, you know, you may be right, but but we would never know unless we allow things to to happen sort of organically yeah, with, more with less of a free the, market. Uh, yeah, yeah more of a free market I, yeah, if we return I, I to the market yeah. state the only thing i'll t- say adam is that i don't i don't think that quite flies because uh, medicine is so is such a such a big team exercise now right so if you show up in a hospital you know a lot of these a lot of these studies are based on like the first er physician you see right but in any encounter certainly any serious encounter where any one individual decision has you know may have a large impact, right? So when somebody's having an acute heart attack, right? There are a lot of different decision, there are a lot of different points that have to go go well, right? And the most vital part of that team may not be the ER physician. It may not it may not be the cardiology attending. It may be the the triage nurse who recognizes the EKG and is the one that quickly gets it to the person who can, you know, pull pull the alarm on things. So that's why the CNN article is, is such a, is, oh, sorry, the, the CNN Oh, gosh, that was hyped, terrible. I mean, that, that, yeah, yeah, Procedure National Academy of Science. I mean, what a, what a horrendous paper. Oh, I mean, terrible. Uh, you know, which, right. which but, but I think, no I think sense. Adam was, was the, theoretically was just, you know, yeah. raising the, the possibility, theoretically. Right. I mean, I, I, yeah, I, yeah, I don't mean, I don't mean yeah. to endorse the mass psychological. Yeah, no, no, I know, I know. On, the idea that, yeah. But, but I will say, you know, to try to make a joke for your listeners that will, will make them appreciate, uh, you know, uh, uh, at least my own personal medical choices. I chose my urologist on the basis of race. He's Filipino. I chose him for the size of his hands. Um, <laughs> and, and they're, they're quite small. Um, uh, he's the best urologist in the world. Happy to give you his name when we're, when we're off. Um, he's also one of my, one of those three guys I mentioned, one of my fraternity brothers from college. So I picked somebody that I know. Um, and, you know, sometimes it can be a great reason. I, I guess I didn't pick him on the basis of race. I picked him on the basis of hand size. But it's, it's a very important factor when you're choosing a urologist, I think. Lots of factors. Adam, you've been more than generous with your time. Thank you so no much. Problem. It was so wonderful having you having you on. Um, we, All right. Uh, we really Take enjoyed care, it. Everybody. Yeah, really, yeah. it was really a pleasure. And, and hello to your listeners. And thanks for having such a great show. Thank uh, you very thank much. Thank you. Thanks so much. 
Thanks for listening to the Akkad and Coca Report. Subscribe for free on iTunes or Stitcher at akkadandcoca.com, where you'll find detailed show notes, our blog, and more. akkadandcoca.com.